Gary DePaul with Unlabeled Leadership. Welcome to episode 110, Al Kingsley Does Not Speak in Code. Here's a shout out to listeners in California, specifically in Beverly Hills, Danville, Davis, Fullerton, Inglewood, and Los Angeles. With that, let's get started. Think big, start small, and scale fast. That's how Al begins his LinkedIn profile about section. Al is the author of My Secret EdTech Diary, which describes 30 years of historical perspective of IT and education, and it offers a roadmap to a new way of thinking about educational technology. Al is the CEO of an EdTech company called NetSupport, and he chairs two multi-academy trusts and a local school governor's leadership group in the UK. If you want to get an idea of Al's character, just go to his LinkedIn profile and look at the recommendation section. To give you an idea, this is what Mark Anderson wrote. He has a tireless passion and enthusiasm for education and has a legacy of mindful, thoughtful, and purposeful work in the sector. An example of this has been his work supporting apprenticeships and developing young people within his business to give young people work and learning opportunities that they might not have received otherwise. He's the sort of leader that colleagues will walk over hot coals to support, primarily because he would always do the same for his colleagues and business partners first. Part 1. The Critical Friend In my book, Nine Practices of 21st Century Leadership, one of the practices is called Facing the Unknown Like Lions. If you want to build how you practice leadership so that you make better decisions, or you want to build your relationships in amazing ways that you cannot even imagine, Facing the Unknown Like Lions is for you. It involves listening and feedback. And as Freeberg and Freeberg write, Listening is powerful because it shows a genuine desire to understand the unique needs and feelings of others. In a unique way, Al talks about this concept of listening, which is part of facing the unknown like lions. Here is Al's take on the concept. I think one of the things that I always reflect on is, like probably many people, uh, when you start out in your career, you're often emboldened with self-confidence and you think you've got the answers to everything. And I certainly was no different in many regards. had an aspiration that I could change the world. As I've got a bit older and greyer, I've realized there are limits to that. But one of the things that I was reminded of when I was fairly early on in my career path was an adage that I'm sure someone will have heard on different occasions. The one that reminds you that you're born with two eyes, two ears, and one mouth, uh-huh. and that we should remember to use them in appropriate proportions. And it's an interesting one because I think with an effort to perhaps in our youth, show enthusiasm, show leadership, show capability, we're often quite quick to dive in and say what we want to think. And I've learned over the years, and it's been an important reminder for me that actually sometimes listening seems a dying art. And often people I notice in conversations stop listening because they're too busy thinking about what they want to say next. And I think about it even more when we think about what's been happening in recent years, particularly with our online collaboration. If we call together a meeting of individuals within an organization or frankly, a broader, broader base 
and the only intention is for one person to articulate their views, then my, my answer is, well, I could have done that with an email. But if I actually want it to be collaborative and reach a consensus, then I think it's really important that you kind of focus and remind that fact that actually the listening is the most important part. And of course, it shapes how the rest of your team feel about you and the perceived value you hold in them. In the early part of my career, before I moved into technology and education, I worked in a high street bank, a mainstream bank in the UK. And in that type of organization with the history, the structures and the procedures, comms was always very much one way. And there was no real scope for response, ideas or input from anybody else. I found that quite claustrophobic. And so I tend to try to reflect on that and think, well, how do my peers feel as I'm trying to lead the business forward and come up with new ideas? I suppose it's strength of confidence, and maybe that comes with experience and wisdom, but I don't think that's the only measure of how you acquire it. But you have to kind of recognize that you can't possibly have all the answers. And if you think you do, well, and I've learned over the years, the odds are you've probably not got the best answers. So a bit of confidence is it's not a weakness to reflect and think, I don't know. So I'm actually going to let others put their talent and their experience into the mix as well. And that stood me in good stead, I believe. I mean, it linked into, you know, if you want to be successful in business, make sure you employ good people. But if you employ good people, why would you employ them just to tell them what to do? You actually need to listen and learn from them as well. So those kind of come full circle to that. Make sure you recognize that actually looking and seeing what's going on and listening to what's going on is probably more important than telling people what you think. I think you just summarized one of the big problems in, well, any organization that has people where you hire the bravest, the best, the most creative, the smartest people, and then you tell them what to do. <laughs> you don't tap into all that they bring to the table. Absolutely, Gary. And I think it does come full circle to that bit about what are you afraid of? Yeah. You know, and I think there is a, a difficulty. We all want to reassure and I suppose to a degree, you know, impress our, our peers and our colleagues that we're very capable in the role that we do and what we do. But I think we have to find that balance between showing leadership, showing an intent and expressing a vision, but at the same time, actually empowering the people that you've chosen to do what they do well. You know, I mean, some people go a step further and, and I don't disagree, which is, you know, if you want to be successful, you know, employ people that are better than you to work for you. And that's a tough one as a pill to swallow. But let's be honest, you know, in my sector, working in the technology sector, no one person can be the expert on technology design, technology development, marketing, sales, finance, and so on. The best businesses are the ones that scale by having that breadth and depth of experience. But I see so many organizations where for all the kind of morally the right reasons, the leader wants to lead and just doesn't provide the air, the space for that innovation to develop from those that they've recruited. It happens a lot, it seems, with less experienced people where they have a myth about what their role is. They get into the idea of my role is to provide the answers, to be the solutions, to resolve the problems. And once you get over that and you're not doing those things, you, it's like, no, everyone else is supposed to be doing these things. I just need to pull it from them, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, and I speak from experience. I can reflect back on myself in the early days taking leadership roles. And probably being too quick to be the one that shared the idea. When you first started, you were talking about this whole art of listening. And I, I love the quotation, two eyes, two ears, one mouth. It reminded me of something that Jason Jennings said, and that is the average speaker talks about 135 words a minute, but the average listener comprehends at a rate 400 times faster than that. Our minds go into what we want to say in other areas, 
just anticipate what people are saying without inquiring and digging into what they're trying to communicate. Yeah, like all those kind of skills, they're often ones that it's very easy for us to take for granted. Being very mindful of that mantra and just thinking about it often allows you to get far more out of a meeting. And I don't just mean in terms of information. In the bigger picture of longevity of a business, and, and we've been in business 32 years now, mm. so we're starting to get our act together and figure things out. The most important driver is about not only having good people that feel valued, but keeping them. If you recruit really, really good people to join your team, and then you don't give them the sense that their opinions and their ideas matter, you don't make time to listen to what they're saying. Even if you might subsequently have a good reason why your approach might be different or better, I think what you do is you ultimately, you, you starve the business because you'll lose the good people. And the people that have got nothing to say, of course, won't be too upset and will stick around. Well, I don't want a business where the most capable, the most innovative, the most communicative people within the organization up and move because they don't feel they've got a voice. And, and what you're left with is people that are just there to follow the journey. I think challenge is a really important part. Just because you wear a certain badge or title in an organization should never mean that you're not immune to challenge. In fact, it's a really healthy process. A, a role outside of my commercial world is I chair a number of multi-academy trusts, so school districts for want of a better term in the United Kingdom. And my role there is to challenge the leadership. And um, We use the term the critical friend, finding that balance between challenge and support. And the challenge is never to catch you out. The challenge is to give you an opportunity to both reassure that you've already thought through the implications, but also a chance to actually reflect yourself and solidify those views. And do they still stack up in the cold light of day? And I think there's all, often a risk in commercial leadership that you get to the top of the tree and you're left in splendid isolation. And that might sound like a good thing on paper, but actually in practice, it's really the best way to really chew through and make sure that you uh, distill down your, your best ideas. Part two, flower the language. If we want to put others first, connect with others, give up control, and collaborate with other people, which are four of the seven leadership principles I talk about, then we need to get better at communicating effectively. Al shares a story that really gets at this. Again, here's Al really hoping sharing kind of this insight won't be necessarily a huge shock to anybody, but it might be something that we just take for granted and don't go beyond. So being a Brit, back in 89, I moved across to the USA to open our, our US business. And I lived in the US for a few years. And when I first came over to the US, one thing I noticed when I was recruiting staff and meeting organizations was that nobody was speaking the same language. And I don't mean American versus British, because I certainly don't want to start a debate on who's right or wrong on that one, because I suspect I might lose. What I meant was people didn't talk in the way that they spoke to people outside of the workplace. Everyone was talking about building traction and harvesting low-hanging fruit, or our salespeople were either hunter-gatherers or farmers. You know, It all came across to me as this language of pretense. And I apologize if I'm going to upset anybody who says, well, that's the way that I communicate, and it's fine by me, Al. It all felt to me a little bit like, why would I talk to people and engage in dialogue to either develop my business internally or externally with people and not speak to them in the way that I would speak to them in any other setting? And I was very fortunate enough to early on meet a district leader in Atlanta and had a meeting with them. And it was the first person who spoke about things with what I call real language. It was very obvious as well that people really engaged with it. It was almost a, this is a different way of talking. We're not trying to bamboozle. We're not trying to over-impress with the terminology. 
ties in with many of my viewpoints, I suppose, about the way that we engage and interact with people about the need for genuine language and communication. I think much in the same way as previously, I've talked about the need to listen and to let your staff feel empowered. I think the same goes in terms of confidence in the way that you represent yourself and what you're offering in terms of what I would class as the perceived integrity and honesty of how you communicate. And I've learned over the years that actually people like being treated the same way as you would treat your friends and family. Speak to them in the same way. Be open, be honest and engage. And again, I kind of said at the beginning, I'm not sure whether this will be revelationary to anybody who's listening, but I still see it heavily in the workplace. Different sectors perhaps are more dominant than others. This kind of need to flower the language, to somehow convey complexity or intelligence on the subject we're talking about, rather than just getting down to the basics of how we explain things. For me, it's really shaped not only the way that I engage with people within the organization. I don't try and one-up on the, the things that I know or the terms that I know versus you, but more importantly, the way that we engage with our customers and our suppliers and, and other organizations that we have a reason to meet with. And I kind of think it comes across almost as the, let's not get into the, the point scoring mentality. Let's just be accessible, imply a bit of humility, and just talk the same way that we would normally engage with our families. It seems that a leading indicator of the need to flower the language mm. would be the list of acronyms. And I actually was on a university website last night and I didn't look at it, but I ran across a link that was a link to their acronyms. The fact that they have acronyms as an organization doesn't matter if they're in education or corporate or a firm or, or whatever. The fact that they have to have a code to be able to communicate and talk and interpret just seems to be an indicator of this flowering of the language. I mean, there are some sectors where if we had to write everything out longhand, we'd probably find that many of our minutes for meetings or documents would be significantly longer. But nonetheless, you're absolutely right. This is all comes ultimately down to accessibility. If we want others to join a space to share best practice, and actually the example I gave about leadership of schools here in the UK, you know, a governance level is about bringing professionals in from other sectors who provide that challenge and oversight, but might come with a background in anything from finance, legal, project management, or whatever, to add to support and strength to the leadership of a school. Well, we don't want to make the ability to reflect on what's happening in a school inaccessible by speaking in everything we do in code. So part of it, of course, is recognizing when it's appropriate to use those reduced terms and when it's better to actually say it in plain English. But, you know, and again, maybe I go over the top, but you know, when someone says to me, you know, well, before we talk about the detail, let's jump on our helicopter view of this or whatever. I, I just kind of think, what, what does that really mean? Why do we need to use that term? Why do we need to refer to a person who looks after existing customers as farmers versus hunter-gatherers? And do we really go off harvesting low-hanging fruit? And, you know, I picked a few, but there, there are plenty out there. And, and I just think, actually, how do I engage and, and develop a relationship with someone I don't know? Well, I'm talking to you today, Gary, and we're having a, a nice conversation. And at no point did we start our conversation by trying to see how many different terms or terminologies we could throw in to the mix. It's two people who've got a shared interest in topics and let's have a nice conversation. I use the friends analogy. You know, I often like a meeting to be a bit like sitting in the coffee shop, you know, and having a coffee together. And I think there is a risk in business that we're so wrapped up in how we present ourselves that we actually like lose sight of who we really are. And actually increasingly now it's the kind of the, the openness and integrity of a business. We don't sell and walk away. We, we create relationships and you create relationships on a, a different foundation than the marketing speak. 
I think that's a critical point, especially if you're in the business of being a supplier or a consultant to organizations. What I've seen is a tendency for people to flower their language, to make them sound more knowledgeable or more lofty in how they talk. Your point is critical about the risk of doing that because if you want to build a relationship with a business, you want to connect with them. For you to connect with them, they have to get to know you. You have to build trust. You have to be vulnerable to a certain extent and even admit or acknowledge where the limits are and what you have to offer and what you know. It seems really obvious when you kind of unpick it and have the opportunity to talk about it as we're doing here. Yeah, I think trust comes from believing you're dealing with the person as an individual. And the more you choose to flower the conversation, the more you distance yourself in reality and the more you leave in the person's mind the question of, do I really know who I'm talking to? And is this a pitch or is this an honest assessment of what they're offering or the relationship we want to engage in? And maybe there's a balance. Clearly, we can't always avoid all of the terminology unique, but I think it's about like everything, isn't it? It is about finding that balance. If you don't use certain acronyms, especially in technical environments, it can be, as you mentioned earlier, cumbersome. And sometimes using metaphors and visual imagery is healthy. It all has to be in context. Absolutely. Part three, how are you? One of the leadership principles that comes up over and over again is one that I mentioned earlier, connect with others. With the challenges of remote meetings, political differences, and differing opinions about equity, connecting with others has become more challenging. I'll provide some advice to help us overcome these challenges. Here's Al. One thing that I think we often forget about in our haste because the deadlines are tight and we've got to get in and out of a meeting and something is actually having a reminder. It's something I try and do and I would not pretend to remember all the time, but actually to pause and stop and ask, how are you? Of course I do that, but actually when you consider how regularly you do it with the people that you work with, you find it's far less frequent than you actually think it is. And when we think about the last 18 months, I would always argue the most valuable parts of meetings when it comes to working with my team is the 10 minutes before and the 10 minutes after in the physical setting where we can just catch up. How's life? What's happening with the family? What did you do at the weekend? And of course, in the world of Teams and Zoom, we don't tend to have much of that. We tend to focus on the formality and less about the informality. The conscious effort to actually just take time out to ask people how they're doing I don't think we always really appreciate how much that will mean to many of the team that work with you, that you actually want to ask that question. And actually, you know, surprise, surprise, you might learn a few things about people, or you might find that people are struggling when you didn't think they were, or vice versa. People are loving what they're doing and you didn't really have much of a sense. So that's kind of one, I suppose, starter for 10 for me. I'm going to build on what I've alluded to already in our earlier conversations. I've obviously said that the eyes and ears and mouth, let's use them in a pro proportions. But one thing I've learned is very much when it comes to a meeting setting, built around that is not only talk less and listen more, but wait till the end of the conversation before you frame your view. Sometimes that's quite difficult because you might set out, well, here's the topic and what we're trying to achieve, discuss. It's a natural persuasion to say, so anyway, what I think we should do is X, Y, and Z. Any feedback? And by doing so, you immediately potentially exclude some of the members of the room who really won't want to feel to say, actually, you know what, boss, I think there's a better way of doing it, or I'm not sure. 
to learn to hold that and actually listen to the other views first of all, which in my experience helps subsequently frame your explanation because you can then take on board the suggestions of others, whether it's to say, actually, that's a good point and it's going to be part of what we're proposing or to be able to explain the rationale as to why not. And the other one thing is we're talking about all of our facial appendages at the moment is as well as learning to listen is actually learning to look while you talk. And it's something if you're involved in doing presentations, and I do quite a few events where I present around, we're all fairly adept if you do it regularly, that you look to the room to see if you get some kind of feedback or acknowledgement. And often we end up focusing in on a few smiley faces whilst we're presenting our alleged words of wisdom. But often in meetings, we don't actually take time to look and recognize that for those perhaps less confident, some new faces around the table, you can pick up a lot by looking at people's reactions. And it gives you an opportunity as a good leader, I believe, to actually invite them into the conversation. If you are really conscious in a meeting that what I want to achieve is to set the objective, encourage and get the voices, I'm going to tease them out or encourage them out or just simply receive them for those more confident of other people's views before I assimilate those together and then shape the best practice or the next steps we're going to take. You'll actually find that that's much more effective. Now, of course, it contradicts the let's get this done as quickly as possible. Here's my vision. Do we all agree? Great. Let's crack on. In terms of sparking innovation and reinforcing your own view, it's a much more effective way to undertake meetings. You never know when someone brings in a perspective that no one had considered that changes everything. Absolutely. And I can assure you, seniority does not ensure or guarantee that that's the place where it will come from. Sometimes the best perspectives are from those that are one or two or three step removed from the problem, those kind of fresh ideas, or have we considered? I know it's probably a daft idea and you think, actually, you know what? It's a really sensible idea. And I had dismissed that or hadn't even considered it as part of the conversation. Why put people around the table if all your intention is to do is to tell them what you think? You can do that on the phone or an email. If you're going to take time to have meetings, let everybody feel that they are part of the process. If you want to implement change within an organization, we all know the most effective way to implement change is to bring people along on the journey rather than to drag them along. So if you want to implement change, if you follow that process of making sure that everyone's had a voice as part of the discussion and the subsequent decision-making process, it's much easier to move forward as a unit than it is where people feel it's simply a doctrine that they're going to be forced to follow. Your advice it all runs into the theme of inviting others to express their voice. I'm reminded of the first one with a previous podcast I had with Patrick Ward, especially during the pandemic, is that check-in, reminding yourself to ask, how are you? Mm -hmm. Because you may start a Zoom call and they may not be in the right state of mind. There could be something really bothering them. When Patrick did this on a weekly basis, he would have a 30-minute meeting with his directs on just whatever's on their minds. At the end of the year, he got feedback from them was, that is what saved me during the pandemic. It changed everything and enabled me to work. Assuming how people are is a mistake. A leadership perspective, a small thing that you do can mean a significant thing for those that you're engaging with. I think we've pretty well summarized here that the most effective leaders are the smart ones that recognize they get the best out of the good people they've employed. My thanks to Al Kingsley. If you'd like to learn more about Al, go to the show notes. If you have a comment or question, go to unlabelleadership.com, click the message icon, and leave a voicemail message for up to one minute. I'd like to thank those who contribute to the show. Your contributions make a difference because this is an all-volunteer service. 
I'd like to thank you for listening. This is Gary DePaul. Until next time, lead on. <laughs>